And welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. Our topic today is the G8 Summit, Addressing a World's Agenda. And we are speaking with the senior researcher, Kellen Bracht, of the GH Research Group about the last summit held in June of this year in Ireland, an annual summit that defines much of the economic direction the world is taking. And because the way we eat and shop and produce our products affects all aspects of life, the G8 summit is also a large part of the environmental and social direction the world is taking. The G8 summit addressing a world's agenda. Our topic today here on An Organic Conversation, I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And I want to start today off with kind of an off-topic question that just occurred for me this morning. Why do you think it is that you know, you can do the exact same thing day after day or see the exact same thing day after day. It's totally routine or habit. And then one day it just sounds different or looks different or feels different. This morning I was listening. I found myself singing along to a song on the radio that and I was having such a great time. And then I realized I always change the station when this song is on. Why today does it bring me so much joy? Well, and, and when you got up on the table and started singing it, that's what we, we really knew you were enjoying it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that you had that occurrence because yesterday I was picking blackberries and I had the exact same experience where it was just like it was a brand new thing for me. And I, and I created a whole different way of, of viewing my choosing and picking of blackberries. And it makes me wonder, you know, with, with our topic today is I wonder about our, our leaders and the leaders of the world and how they view a different way of doing things. What's occurring. What's occurring and, and, and looking at a different way of doing things than the way we've been doing it for the last hundred years. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I think you both are hitting it with different words the same frame for me. It's, um, you know, everything is ever evolving and so are we. And I remember actually um, when it comes to music, all these childhood memories of something that was super meaningful when you were 14, right? Like one song that just really hit your core, why ever. And um, and then, you know, it's kind of a, a sweet memory. And then all of a sudden in life, that old, really old song, some t something is touched again by that. And it's, you know, you, you literally integrate, you don't just remember, but you integrate everything that was associated with that song. And you kind of hear it not for the first time, but in a new way, in the same meaningful way, similar to, you know, 20 years back. So I think we are evolving every day. We are changing every day. Everything is is moving. The only constant is change. And so in that, when things cross, however often we have done that, cross us as the new us, mm -hmm. you know, they just uh, meet somebody new in that moment. Exactly. I, th I think of it the exact same way because, you know, we, we sometimes read the same books a few times or maybe many times and we watch the same movies. And it, part of it is comfort and enjoyability, but part of it is also exactly what you're hitting on, Helga, which is when you go back and you do it again, you're meeting it as oh, a yeah, new person. Oh, yeah, and you're getting something new out getting of it, right? Especially with it. books. Yeah, you can, yeah, I've read that, and then you pick it up again, and wow, it's almost a brand new experience because reading it five years later. Because you've had new life experiences that change the relationship you have to what's going on. Mark, same for you. I know you don't read, so you, you couldn't read. <laughs> 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 Why is that? <laughs> 
You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm <laughs> I'm someone who can't read. Speechless. <laughs> and, um, and I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And um, yes, everything is evolving. So is world politics. Our topic today is the G8 summit last month's um, big world summit on the economic path this world is taking or will be taking held every year um, in June this year it was an island and we will be speaking with a senior research analyst of what the summit brought forth today here in an organic conversation that and more when we come back stay tuned Back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our topic today is the G8 Summit, addressing a world's agenda. The G8, the eight most powerful economic forces, countries on this planet, meet every year in different countries to discuss where the economy of the world should be headed. Part of that is the U.S., England, Germany, Italy, Canada, Russia, France, and Japan. And as guest countries, China, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, and India are also part of that annual summit. What started in 1975 defines to a large degree um, how economies around the world in all countries are functioning and where they are headed. Um, we will be speaking with a senior analyst of a watch group for the G8 summit in just a minute. But before we dive into that topic, here is our very own Chef Sita, Sita Rani Palomar, with her holistic bite. Thank you, Helga. Well, chances are that many of you probably do not need for me to tell you why quinoa is so good for you or why it's so good to eat, because this is really an Inca super grain that has been very, very popular in recent years. It's on restaurant menus. It's in every recipe or cookbook that you can find. And it is it is really good for you. And we'll get to that later. But lately, I've heard a lot of people express challenges or confusion about how to prepare it. So if you found that when you cook quinoa, it turns out mushy or crunchy, then this bites for you. I'm going to tell you my tips on how to make super simple, super delicious Inca superfood quinoa. 
And the first thing you want to do is you want to rinse your quinoa really, really well. Quinoa has a coating on it of um, something called saponin. And saponin is what gives soap its sudsiness. And this is just a natural thing that's on the quinoa. And you want to make sure to rinse that off completely. And the water will eventually run clear once you get those kind of sudsy effects gone. And that will keep your quinoa from tasting bitter. But here's part of what makes the difference between a mushy quinoa and a fluffy quinoa. And that has to do with the quantity of water. So you want to get your water boiling in advance, maybe while you're rinsing your quinoa, because it needs to be hot before the quinoa goes in. That's part of what keeps it fluffy. And although most grains have about a one to two ratio of grain to water, with quinoa, in my experience, in all of the years that I've been making it, the optimal ratio is one cup of quinoa to one and a half cups of water. That's part of what's going to keep it from getting mushy, is by keeping the water content to the right amount for this grain. So get one and a half cups of water boiling if you're making one cup of quinoa. And if you want, you can add half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of salt, depending on how you're using it and what your taste preference is. And you can, if you would like, also add a tablespoon of olive oil or coconut oil. That's not necessary if you don't want to, but it does help somewhat in keeping those grains kind of individualized instead of all coming together. So once your water is boiling, you add your quinoa. And the hot water, when it when the quinoa hits it, will help to seal it off so the starches don't all leach into the water. I've talked about this before a lot in my holistic bite. That helps keep the individual texture of the grains. So then you bring the water back up to a boil once the quinoa is in it. Then cover it and reduce it to a simmer and let it simmer for 10 minutes. There are recipes that say 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Again, in my experience, all the years cooking quinoa, 10 minutes is the amount that I want for white quinoa. I'm talking about white quinoa in particular. Even though red quinoa and black quinoa is pretty much the same thing, I found that those maybe take a little bit longer, but most people cook white quinoa. And it may also depend on the brand. The brand that I buy, it always takes 10 minutes. You may find that yours takes 15, but start with less. Less is more. And then once you set your timer for 10 minutes, when the timer goes off, turn off the flame and leave the pot sitting on the burner. Set the timer again for five minutes and let it sit there and steam. When the timer goes off the second time, take the lid off and take a fork to fluff it. Ideally, at this point, when you start fluffing those grains, you'll notice that they fall like pearls. They haven't all coagulated together into one mass. This is how you get that beautiful fluffy texture that makes a fantastic quinoa salad, or you can use it to put into soups, or you can have it as a side dish. There are so many things you can do with this texture. This is my favorite way. And really, we're talking 15 minutes, you know, 10 minutes to simmer, five minutes to steam, and it's done. I can't think of another grain that has that much ease of preparation and then that much nutritional benefit because, you know, while you may not need this refresher, I'm I'm really taking it on as my responsibility to tell you why these foods are so good for you. So quinoa in particular is extremely high in calcium. It's much higher in calcium than other grains. It's also a great source of B vitamins, although not B12, but other B vitamins. And it's a complete protein. And no other grain, to the best of my recollection, has all of the essential amino acids. So this is a fantastic protein for vegetarians and vegans in particular. It's a fantastic protein for everybody, but it is one of the few plant sources that is a complete protein. So that is your holistic bite on how to make super simple, super delicious, super perfect texture quinoa, not called a superfood for nothing. And thanks for listening. That's this week's Holistic Bite. Wow. See, I I don't (laughs) think I was doing the uh, steam and fluff. 
I think I was just doing the, the steam. Just well, no, or just just, just the cook, and then <laughs> tried to fluff. But I, the steam and fluff makes sense. That's that's really a great tip. Uh, question. Uh, sometimes you can, like some of the grains that are hardier, like wild rice, you can wash well and then s let sit in a pot overnight to soak so it's, it cooks quicker. Not so with quinoa, it sounds like. You can. And I have done that before, actually, just because I, I can't really remember why. I think I just wanted to try it because I have soaked a lot of my grains the night before. You knew I would ask. That's why. <laughs> and I do think that it cooked quicker, but it didn't have this. Mm -hmm. This for me is a foolproof formula. I've been making quinoa with this exact formula for years and years. I have always gotten the perfect texture. Anytime I stray from it, if I leave the lid off, if I add too much water, if I let it simmer, and these are things that I've seen people do that make it stickier. And that's just not what you want with quinoa. Yeah, yeah. and the, I, I love that sealing it in through really hot water, right? In general, if you have a something that could leak fat or could leak starch or the hotter the water, the quicker it closes. And then it keeps you know, everything you want true. in the grain or in the produce. Well, and since you're talking about fat, I'm just going to add on to that note because mm -hmm. it is a good point. If you do ever fry something or if you go out to a place and you get fried food, if it comes exactly the way you want it, where it's super, super crispy and not oily, that's because the fat was hot enough. Yeah. If the fat like isn't soggy, hot enough, soggy fries. Exactly. The, the, the ingredient you put in the oil absorbs more Mark of the oil before nodding. it actually cooks on the outside. So yep. soggy, temperature. Soggy fries. Nobody likes soggy fries. <laughs> <laughs> no, heat up the oil, man. Our show last week was Old Wives' Tales and how to cook quinoa is not an old wives' tale. So thank you for that. You're that welcome. was Sita with her holistic bite. Um, last week's show, Old Wives' Tales, legendary remedies. So fun. We dove into our favorite three each of things we heard from uh, goose fat on your chest to prevent or cure colds or ingestions um, or infections in the chest area to um, Mark. What did you have? Warts. Oh, yeah. Warts oh, from toads. Toads, <laughs> actually. And uh, Sita. Cutting an onion, whether it absorbs bacteria yes. from the air. If you missed that show, you can listen to it now as a podcast on anorganicconversation.com or on iTunes if you missed that episode or any other. You can also check us out on facebook.com forward slash on organic conversation and we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your comments and questions as so many people actually have done last week uh, to share at anorganicconversation.com and we will be sharing a couple of those in upcoming episodes. Our topic today is the G8 Summit. We are talking politics, addressing a world's agenda. We're speaking with the senior research analyst, Carolyn Brecht, of the G8 Research Group about the last summit held in June of this year in Ireland. Caroline Brocht is joining us today from Toronto, Canada. Caroline, are you with us? I am. Great to have you. Thank Welcome you for being show. on the show. Tell us about G8. It's kind of, um, you know, people know the United Nations as a, a world forum of countries to um, define leadership decisions of, of where the world is headed. Um, the G8 started in 1975. It was held in France. What was the intention and what has transpired over the last 30 plus years? From the very beginning, they started with a very clear mandate for to sort of promote within their own nations, as well as globally, democracy, um, the rule of law, individual liberty, and as well as social advance. So very clear agenda set out. 
Um, the idea is that it's a group of leaders from like-minded countries that are interested in promoting those values globally. Um, from the outset, they started dealing with a sort of plethora of other issue areas, primarily trade, um, and very early on also uh, clear references to energy, the diversification of energy um, for, you know, efficiency reasons as well as cost, etc. So um, the agenda has continued to expand over the last, you know, over 30 years. Um, the Although they deal with the primary agenda items, as I mentioned, within the mandate, the chair is a rotating host. So it goes through a cycle. Each country has the chance to host the summit. So they build on the primary agenda. And each year, those priority agenda items, they do change. And the um, and so the host does have some leverage of which agenda items are the priority. Oh, sure. And Carolyn, uh, what started with six countries, I believe, is now eight. It was known as G6 and then G7, and now it's G8. The U.S., England, Germany, Italy, Canada, Russia, France, and Japan. And then a couple or a handful of more countries were introduced and brought to it, even though they don't officially belong to the G8. Um, mm -hmm. China, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, and India. Why was it not expanded, or why has it not been expanded yet to officially include those economic large um, countries as well? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that the conversation can stay quite informal when the table is smaller. So you hear some criticisms, or not even criticisms, but sort of some questions about how efficient and effective the G20 can be. Because in addition to the leaders, you have um, international organizations which are invited, and you generally have representatives um, from various regional organizations as well as um, invited guests. So the Outreach Five, as you just referenced, um, I believe that they were invited as sort of an idea that, you know, the, the power dynamics are shifting. We need to look at these increasingly powerful emerging economies But there is a hesitation to expand for a variety of reasons. And one is that when the table gets bigger, it is a bit more difficult to come to a concise decision. Yeah, with China, for example, when, you know, soon perhaps one of the largest economies in the world, um, as everything we do, and we want to get into that a little bit later, um, affects the environment and social uh, disparity, as you already mentioned, um, those countries, of course, should be part of the conversation. Um, you are part of this conversation. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palmar. And we're speaking with Kellen Brocht, who's joining us today from Toronto, Canada, who is a senior analyst and researcher for the G8 Research Group. So, Carolyn, I want to... You said that the, the host country supplements the agenda for mm -hmm. the, the summit that's... that's upcoming, or in this case, a summit that happened in this past June. So what was the agenda? And what did you observe in your research about what was discussed and what was the outcome? You see a concerted effort to actually make um, connections between the previous summit and the next summit. So there's this troika that is established. Um, they're doing it in the G20 as well as in the G8, where, you know, looking at what was done last year, um, having conversations, trying to bridge the agendas to have more coherence. 
This past summit, which it was in Loch Erin um, in Northern Ireland, so the host of the United Kingdom, David Cameron, he announced early on that he would have a three T's agenda, which was tax, transparency, and trade. Later on in the year, a fourth T was added on, which was terrorism. And um, this three T's agenda, although it was sort of steered away from a climate change focus or a development focus, it... um, it did something interesting in the sense that it, it dealt with their traditional agenda, the transparency, democracy type type um, sort of conversation, but it also advanced into um, forward-looking, sort of what are our challenges going forward with revenue generation, with financing of our economies, fiscal consolidation issues, etc. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of an interesting agenda, and I, I, I do personally feel like it did deal with some of the um, some of the issues that we have, you know, that are quite pressing on our economy. Absolutely. Well, yes. and before we get too far, you're with the G8 Research Group. And mm-hmm. what is the G8 Research Group? So as we continue this conversation, um, mm-hmm. our listeners will have a better idea of, you know, what you do and, and your role when you in attending the G8. Right. So I work directly for a professor of political science. His name is Professor John Curtin. And when the summit was first hosted in Toronto in 1989, um, he, he developed a keen interest. Um, and since this summit, he, since that summit, he has been following um, the G8 and then went into the G20, and as well as now we have a keen interest in the BRICS as well, as informal summit institutions, these meetings of leaders. None of the groups have a formal secretariat. So we function as an information center. We have three individual websites, one dedicated to the G8, one for the G20, and one for the BRICS. And it is just a home for all of the um, the summit-related documents. So, like I said, none of them have a formal secretariat. So these documents, um, each host has and develops a website, but it's not kept up over time. So our website has all of these documents. We look at the communiques, we break them down according mm-hmm. to um, a framework, and we just provide sort of the world with what we try to do as objective analysis. And before we get too far, can we, since our focus is the G8, but can you tell us what BRICS is? BRICS is a, a newer forum. It's comprised of the leaders of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and more recently added South Africa. It originally started off in 2001 as, as merely an acronym coined by Jim O'Neill, who's um, a financer, and he um, coined this as sort of the place to look for investments in the future. The leaders of these um, countries officially started meeting as a group of leaders in 2008 in Russia, and since then they've held an annual summit and they've developed their own agenda, um, similar to the G8 and the G20. We're speaking today with Carolyn Brocht, the senior researcher of the G8 Research Group um, and, and a monitoring organization or perhaps a watchdog for the G8 annual summit um, held uh, in June this year in Ireland, an annual summit that much defines the economic direction the world is taking. Um, Caroline, do you understand yourself as a watchdog group or do you prefer the, the research analyst um, title? 
Um, I mean, watchdog is definitely another word for what we do. <laughs> we publish something called a compliance report. Yes. So we take the communiques that the leaders release at the end of the summit. We break it down into what is an actual um, discrete commitment, and we have a definition of what we identify as a commitment. From this list of commitments, we then select priority commitments to monitor. Um, and we monitor these for an entire year from the day the commitment is made until the day of the next summit. I mean, there's limitations to our methodology, etc. You can't do everything. Right. Um, but So we are a bit of a watchdog. We do base it. We don't necessarily put opinion in these, in these compliance reports. It's very much based on what each individual government does. On each commitment. Yeah, you mentioned you, you yeah. mentioned um, taxes and trade, and um, when we come back, we'll take a quick break. But when we come back, um, we do want to hear your observation um, if that group is really addressing the world at large, or does it feel to you, if you can say that on the air, um, that you know the interests of the individual countries are equally important and and taken into consideration there. Um, or is it really a world forum of leaders uh, that 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 looks at the the world at large, the world as a whole, um, especially when it comes to environmental challenges? We know that um, climate change was not really a topic of this year's summit. So all that when we come back, we're speaking with Carolyn Bracht, senior researcher of the G8 Research Group, who's joining us today from Toronto, Canada, a watchdog analyst organization that monitors the activities around the annual G8 Summit, the Summit of World Leaders Defining the World Economy Path. Um, you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Working from home is awesome, except when it's not. If you're working from your couch or your coffee shop, chances are you're not your most productive. For thousands of entrepreneurs, co-working is the answer. Next Space is a co-working company with offices in L.A. and the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Find an innovative workspace, a built-in community, and great networking opportunities at NextSpace. Visit nextspace.us for more information. NextSpace. Your best work happens here.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic today is the G8 Summit, Addressing a World's Agenda, held last month in June in Ireland, an annual summit of the G8 nations, um, U.S., England, Germany, Italy, Canada, Russia, France, and Japan, uh, plus the guest countries, China, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, and India, really defining the economic direction that this world is taking and building policy around that. Um, Carolyn Bracht, again, is the research, a senior researcher at the G8 Research Group, a monitoring and watchdog organization that kind of distills and defines uh, what the work that has been done there really looks like in detail and makes it available to us. Carolyn, we talked before the break about taxes and trade that were very much the topic of this year's summit in 2013. My question was, um, from your vantage point, from your perspective, uh, how important is the individual economy of each individual member country um, held compared to the overall economy of the world? What is what is really the focus? How to safeguard the G8 countries and and build in you know the the developing countries China, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, and India? Or is the conversation as a G8 um, leadership focused on world economy at the same time to the same degree? What's your what's your observation there? It's a bit of a balance, I would say. They're obviously concerned about their own national economies, but do realize the, the fine balance that needs to be achieved with other emerging economies, especially because they're providing the major sources of growth. The trade agenda item for this past G8 was very much focused on the Canada-EU trade deal, Japan-EU, as well as the beginning of the negotiations for the U.S.-EU trade deal. And this, um, I believe, was you know, a direct response to trying to spur growth within the European Union um, and, and, and sort of spur growth within these developed and sort of staggering economies um, that we are all in at the moment. Um, the BRICS, the emergence of the BRICS as a summit um, summit and, and meeting that started in 2008, it's an interesting forum, and, and they are Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They are facilitating trade within their own economies. So it's a bit of a contentious issue in the sense that you see the G8 and the BRICS, and they're almost at two other ends of the spectrum. It's kind of an interesting conversation to have. Um, where you see the G8 facilitating trade within its own economies and the BRICS facilitating trade within its economies. And where we will see the connections between the two um, should be highlighted and, and noted. Yeah, so it seems it, it seems exceptionally difficult to, uh, as we are looking at a world economy. And, you know, if, if countries like Greece have economic struggles, the European Union and especially Germany had to come to the table and kind of bail them out and that we are seeing that in countries all over the world so the the economic benefit of one must include you know as they say any good deal um, is good for the buyer and the seller uh, the economic struggles of some countries will come back to our shores anyway um, mm -hmm. as do ours affect everyone else so this is a world economy um, is is that is the forum held in that spirit it is. I mean, the summits are, are definitely um, focused internally. They are all sort of suggesting their own national priorities. Um, and then the, the summit documents are a, a collaboration of, of sort of all gotcha. of the national positions 
um, and how they would perceive these going forward on a global scale and a global platform. I mean, the G8 um, has held itself to account with many of its commitments. They started in 2010 publishing an internal um, accountability report. Now, how much they can hold the international uh, community to account is very different. So in the term, uh, in the instance of the tax, the tax agenda item, you know, first and foremost, they're holding themselves to account and then promoting it internationally. So really what they can do is sort of lead by example and then, um, you know, apply that sort of directional shaping. Yes, sure. Well, getting back to those documents, you said before the break that after the summit, the G8 research group puts together the list of the discrete commitments made by all of the participants at the G8 summit. And then from there, you have sort of sectioned out what are the priority commitments that you will monitor throughout the year to see if everybody is hitting these targets. Can you share with us what the G8 research group was able to identify as the discrete commitments and within those, the priority commitments out of the uh, summit that happened in June? Ma- making them much less discreet than oh. before. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit early to sort of see any movement on those commitments. From There was um, the main document from the Loch Aaron Summit was 24 pages, and then there were two annexes which were attached to that. So it was quite a lengthy document. Um, and the summit really did sort of what it, the center stage was um, the conflict with Syria and especially the tension between sort of the Western economies and the European economies and Russia having two different positions on this. And that's generally what you see happening with summits is is that the crisis of the day does come in and, and sort of take over a bit of the agenda. So that's a side note. But the commitments that were made at this summit, um, they span a variety of issue areas. And in total, we identified it around 141. And so I'll have to get back to you on the actual breakdown by issue area because it's still a bit early on. We're now sort of shifting gears to the upcoming G20 summit, which is uh, in St. Petersburg, September 5th and 6th. Mm-hmm. And um, Caroline, I have a question for you. So this is mm-hmm. just completely fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, you read about it in the paper and yet just listening to yeah, you actually background. gives it a whole nother uh, <laughs> perspective for me. Um, so what at what level, if any, does the summit integrate nature or climate change or sustainability or those types of things? And if they and do they or don't they? Do they or don't they make progress on these? Well, issues? yeah. Do they? Or, is it even part of the agenda? Um, climate change. I mean, I've been with the research group for the last over about three years now, and I have not seen in my short time doing this is I have not seen uh, climate change be a priority agenda item. It's definitely embedded within the overall agenda. Um, It generally comes further down in the document, and it's a section all to itself. Um, From a personal opinion, I would like to see climate change um, embedded throughout. So how do we do climate change assessments within finance, within trade? It should be, you know, climate change, gender, those issue areas should be embedded throughout all others. which we haven't seen done yet. Yeah, I just want to chime in there because um, Carolyn Brott is joining us today from Toronto, Canada. And Mark, didn't you just have a Toronto airport experience of you know, climate change or not, but what happened? Well, that's what we were talking about earlier in the show is, uh, Caroline, we were saying that when I was at the airport, they were shutting the airport down because there was, you know, uh, talk of funnel clouds and things like that, which are not, isn't common weather in, in uh, Eastern Canada. No. 
So well, I have to say, Caroline, I love what you said about wanting to see climate change and gender play a bigger role in the discussion that's happening. I completely agree with you, and I would love to find out how can we get you into that conversation. And it is, well, you know, it, it is just to add to that. It is interesting that um, that that connection of environmental impact of culture of climate um, directly affecting our economy um, by impact and the other way around by production. How, whatever we do, what, how, whatever we buy, however we produce it has a direct effect on um, you know, the cultural, uh, economic, environmental um, connections. So exactly. how, how can a leadership group not make that or let me let me f rephrase that because it already sounds like an accusation but <laughs> is is that really um, embraced the way um, we understand it that that everything we buy and everything we produce has a direct effect on the economy and the environment and um, those environmental costs or costs in, in quote unquote directly in money and impacts have a direct effect on the economy is that feedback loop um, embraced? Is that part of the agenda? Not, not directly the way that you've put it. Um, there's definitely a conversation and terminology included in the documents, which you know refers to sustainable development as well as social inclusion. Those are sort of highbrow terms, right? And they lack definition, um, which is one of my frustrations, is that you have these wonderful mandate statements, but then, you know, where's the how? And how does that go further? And, you know, who do we involve in this, et cetera? And so I'd like to see some more definitions going throughout. One sort of nice tidbit was I was in South Africa for the last BRICS summit, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It was held in Durban, South Africa this past March. And the journalists, which were there covering the story from various African countries, they were interested in asking me about, you know, climate change and gender. Those are the issues that they were concerned about. How does mm. the BRICS impact other African countries? So how I see this going is with all of us moving forward together. Um, you know, the G8, 1975, it's a bit of an older institution, or sorry, informal meeting. You have the BRICS, which is 2008, much newer. You have the G20, which is right in the middle, um, started off as finance ministers, moved to leaders in, in 2009. Um, and so you have these sort of three diverse and yet similar institutions, and I really look towards how they're shaping their terminologies and who they're including in conversations. And I think that we can all work, the various yeah. international organizations, transnational civil movements, media, social media, all that stuff, to, to change the terminology that we're using and sort of get clear definitions and movement forward. It's a slow-moving machine. And, and you're right. I mean, women rights, I didn't even list that. But of course, on top of the agenda, um, women much more likely to create household income, especially in African nations, if there is access to, um, you know, small capital micro funds, it's all completely connected. So mm -hmm. um, thanks for your work. Um, if people want to get into it, they want to learn more. Mark, you, you wanted to ask, what's the best what? way? <laughs> Let me ask for you then. <laughs> what's the best way for people to, to be involved, to learn more, maybe even to have an impact on the summit? There's definitely some very well-developed civil society movements. I know the organization One um, with Bono. He has quite a large movement, and they publish an accountability report called the Data Report. There's generally issue-specific um civil society movements that go along, um, and there's always, always some kind of a, a counter-movement to the summit. 
Um, and, and they're getting quite creative and quite innovative, and um, I love to see it. Yes, so, otherwise you have lots of really good information on your website. It's we g- do. g8.u for University Toronto, utoronto.ca. Again, that's g8.u Toronto, just the letter u, toronto.ca. Um, Kellen, thank you so much for being with us today. There was not enough time to really shed light on everything that you do, but it did give us a good understanding and overview of your work as an analyst, research, and watchdog group um, for the G8 Summit, this really important and often in the media not fully reflected, um, we feel, um, really important annual summit of the G8 Economic Power Nations um, plus the six other countries that are invited, um, changing really the way the economy runs across the globe. Um, so thanks for your important work. And again, the website is g8.utoronto.ca. That's Kellen Brecht, senior researcher with the G8 Research Group, joining us today from Toronto, California, um, Canada. Thank you Thank so much, you. Kellen, Thank for you, being Caroline. with us. Thank you, Caroline. Great having you. My pleasure. Okay, coming up here next is What's in Season, the weekly produce update with our very own Mark Mukehi. That and more when we come back. Stay tuned. Want to feel your absolute best this summer? Full of energy, clarity, and health? Join Bowman College founder Dr. Ed Bowman at our Vitality Fasting Retreat for the ultimate therapeutic mind and body cleanse. Detoxify, renew, and start fresh through a fun and rejuvenating week-long retreat at the beautiful Stillheart Institute in Woodside, California. The Bowman College Vitality Fasting Retreat is held August 17th through the 23rd and space is limited, so sign up today. For more information, visit bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. Are you committed to green, socially responsible, and sustainable business practices? Percepticon can help with eco-friendly internet solutions, website design services, e-commerce solutions, mobile apps, and high-performance internet hosting for your business. Percepticon is a full-service agency that specializes in web consulting, strategy, and technology development, so you can successfully communicate with your audience. Lighten your tech footprint in a green hosting environment. Call Percepticon today at 925-937-9000 or visit them at Percepticon. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. He said there's no doubt about it. It was a 
transmit the fingerprints I've seen them all and man, they're all the same Well, the sun gets weary and the sun goes down Ever since the watermelon And the lights come up on the black pit town Somebody says, what's a better thing to do? Well, it's not just me and it's not just you This is all around the world and we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our topic today is the G8 Summit, Addressing a World's Agenda. We spoke with senior researcher Kellen Brocht of the G8 Research Group. Again, her website is g8.u, just the letter U, toronto.ca for Canada. g8.u, toronto.ca. Um, shedding light on that annual forum, that summit of the world power nations to define the economic direction this world is taking. Now it's all about produce. Here's our very own Mark Mukihi with the weekly update of what's going on in the world of produce and on the produce, produce docks. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what's in season? <laughs> there, there who's seems who's to chiming be, there in seems there to be a ghost in the machine here? <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, now the the gig's up, Earl. Everybody knows that you, that you are just right here in the studio with us all the time. Um, <laughs> sounding like would, a telephone. I would love to have like an Earl Angel on my shoulder, so that you I do. always knew Actually, what to, whenever I go to the store. Get that peach. That one. Yes. That's the one. Yes. <laughs> should we introduce <laughs> Earl? Does it matter? Still, you should, Mark. Matter. Why don't we? <laughs> Earl who? Um, so, uh, Earl, uh, of course, we've got Earl Herrick from the San Francisco Produce Market of Earl's Organic, um, and uh, otherwise known as the voice of the produce mm. market. Um, yeah. So I have a question for all three of you, and we'll start with Helga and Sita, and then go to you, Earl. So what is your favorite variety of watermelon? Peaches. Favorite variety of watermelon? That is such a specific question. Yeah, that's question. not fair, Mark. Well, no. I, what is your favorite I, variety? My like, favorite variety is whichever Earl tells me to buy. Yeah, the <laughs> one I had last week. Okay. So, that's so Earl, what's your favorite variety? I couldn't name well, one. You, you know, there's a couple. Um, and they're, they're pretty well known, though. I guess I can't really say that because most people don't know varieties. But mine is a Crimson Sweet which is a real big one, and then I, uh, the other one I like that's uh, a bit different called a Sugar Baby, and that's smaller and deep, deep, deep color, uh, dark green on the outside, sugar deep color baby. red, and the, the big crimson sweets, more of a striper, more oblong, like your traditional kind. And, and, I, and Sugar Baby, you just made that up, come on. Oh, no, no. I, <laughs> actually, you know, now that he's I've saying never it, seen that. I remember it from last year, and I have to say, I'm pretty sure that that's my favorite, because I've I learned never it from seen Earl that. last year. I mean, with, with non-watermelons, you do see varieties, right? We had the Galia Delicious right now. Yeah. Um, watermelons, yeah. it's it's seedless or seeded. That's, At least that's what we that's think. That's what's featured in the stores. We've got to have a dialogue with our produce yes. guy and find okay. out. Mark. Well, so, that is the deal, isn't it, Mark? There's... That's the thing we've been talking about for years about, you know, varieties losing their 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 place in the department. Where now it's just a watermelon. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of varieties. And if you really want to get to know them, go to a farmers market, and they will they will get that defined for you. And you know what I thought was interesting for me when I talked to growers, I, I asked them like, how do you determine what you're growing? 
Like, why do you choose that one? And it's all pretty normal. You know, it's what they like. It's what their friends like. Um, talking to other farmers, what works in that vicinity. Uh, they go uh, go into seed catalogs and, and pick out something descriptive. Hmm. But the bottom line, of course, is about flavor and sweetness. And what I would do, go to farmer's market, get those varieties that you like, and then go to your stores and go, hey, I'd love to get a sugar baby, an orchid, a moon and stars, a sangria. Any of those kind of varieties are really good. <laughs> um, so what kind of year is it going to be for watermelon? Oh, it's, it's absolutely a great one. Well, first of all, watermelons are grown all over the country, and that's so that's what's so wonderful on a, this warm summer nights and days. You can pick out melons everywhere. California's looking for a great year. We've had lots of hot weather, um, and the projection is there's not going to be any, any early rain. So you got the whole valley just in great production. Uh, prices are real stable. Uh, you got to be able to find what you want. Oh, that's that's fantastic, and that's red and yellow. Red and yellow, and when I say find what you want, get out there and 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 discover the varieties that you like. Keep on asking questions, ask your produce man. But I think your best chance is at a farmer's market. Well, I have a question for my produce men, mm. <laughs> the two of you. Is there a significant flavor difference between red and yellow watermelon? I mean, I think that at least maybe I'm speaking for myself only, but maybe there's a perception that red means sweeter. And so people, at least I, don't purchase the yellow watermelon because I don't know that it's going to have the flavor that I want. So can you demystify Mm. that? Mm. Well, it's pretty subjective, but in my experience, the, the majority of the yellow ones are milder, though I'm sure there's got to be some killer sweet ones out there that I just haven't had. What about you, Mark? Well, for me, the yellow has is uh, more of a um, oh, I don't know if it's def- a defined flavor. the 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 reds are sweet, and of course, they vary in texture from grainy to melt in your mouth. But the yellow, for me, tends to be more more floral, and also uh, just have more nuance to it in the flavor than the red does. So that's why I, that's why I like both. I really like the sound of that. How do you pick him, Earl and Mark? Um, I, you know, we talk about, talk to the produce guy and, and ask for a sample. Cutting into a big melon, while totally appropriate, seems maybe a hurdle too big to overcome for some shoppers yeah. listening to this right now. If they yeah. don't want to have them cut into it and then say, yeah, it's not quite there, and then leave a hole in the melon, how, yeah. how would you... How can you get pretty sure that it's a good one? Well, you know, it's first, it's got to be heavy for its size. Um, obviously, if you're picking up a big watermelon, it's going to feel heavy anyway. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for any size. <laughs> exactly. And, and you want to look at the melon itself, the shape. It should be plump. It should be pushing out. It should be pregnant, if you will. That means it's ripe. So on the stem end, it should have generally no stem at all, and it should be fully pushed out. Um, if there's ribbing, if it's a variety with ribbing, you should be able to see that. And then some guys go on sound, they look for, they, they listen for that hollow sound. Um, what I would do is ask, I'll take a half a melon, and that way, if you're not comfortable getting a sample, you buy a half a melon, or maybe even a quarter if it's one of these huge things, and then you try it and see what you think. Cool. Mark, any additional? Uh, just if there is a stem, it should be brown, meaning that it, it would actually was ready to pick. And then also, uh, melons sit on the ground. They're heavy. They sit on the ground. And so on the underside, 
there is usually uh, like a difference in color, mm-hmm. and that should not be white or green. That should be yellow because that means yep. it, got, it was able to sit on the ground long enough to actually ripen. So the stem end is important and also um, the yellow on the bottom. But that's why we'll never find a completely green watermelon um, or no. whatever color because that that part that sits on the ground was not exposed to sunlight, right? Yes, yeah, so just yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's it, not a flaw. That's a that's nature's law. Nature's design. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wanted to go back for a moment. Um, you were talking about the different colors, and a recommendation I have for you is to if you can find one, it's called a rugby. Ooh. Okay. And it's a it's a smallish round kind of a green stripe, and it should be pretty pretty sweet, and it's got a really nice deep color. So if you can you know ask around and. Do a little research. Try looking for a rugby. I will. I'm not afraid to ask my produce department. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Earl. <laughs> well, yes. th- thanks, Earl. Go out and eat some watermelon. And uh, watermelon, as always, we appreciate it. Yeah. Enjoy summer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You too, The red Earl. and the yellow. Wonderful. Yeah, watermelon. Go out and eat it. Juice it. Squeeze it. Put it in your salad, whatever you want. I do have to say juicing. Oh, juicing watermelon is brilliant because it's got such high water content. You can even juice the peel, and the flavor is phenomenal. Watermelon itself is high in lycopene. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening.